The following program brought to you by Comprehensive Financial Consultants and CFCI, which is solely responsible for its content. Securities are offered through J.W. Cole Financial, member FINRA and SIPC. Investment advice offered through CFCI and J.W. Cole Advisors. J.W. Cole Financial, J.W. Cole Advisors, and CFCI are unaffiliated entities. The opinions expressed by the members of CFCI and their guests should not be construed as specific investment, legal, or tax advice. All economic and performance information is historical and not indicative of future results. Investing may involve the risk of loss of principal, and any tax advice on the show is not intended to be used by any persons for the purpose of avoiding U.S. federal or state tax. Penalties that may be imposed on such persons and each listener should seek advice from their tax advisor or legal counsel on topics that arise from the show. The representatives of CFCI and their guests are not providing legal or tax advice, and nothing should be construed as a solicitation to offer or buy securities. Now enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to me. It is my birthday week, just so you know that. So all of you that follow me on Facebook or whatever, you text me. Uh, I said to someone this morning, I'm too old for birthdays. I can't handle all these well wishes anymore. <laughs> it takes too much time. But anyway, thank you very much for all that. Thanks to Wayne and uh, Jimmy for feeling in the hot seat last week as Doug and I were both out of town. So, Doug, we have a great show lined up today. Before we get started, though, we'll just a little brief moment to talk about what happened last week. We did have a pretty decent week. Stocks pushed higher last week, led by the big tech names, of course, boasted by the December inflation report that were mixed but positive enough to shore up investor confidence in Fed rate cuts this year. We'll see how that all shakes down. Kind of a rock and roll week, but we did end on a high note. Kind of an inflation report of two tails, but we're not going to get into that right now because I want to get to our guests. Go ahead and give us the uh, lowdown, Doug, on who our guest is today because I know you're very excited about it. Absolutely. Well, you know, one of the most important rules about investing with someone is understanding who you're investing with. And so, uh, for more than half of my career, I've been investing money with a particular fund family called First Eagle. And uh, over the years, I had gone to their due diligence meetings and continue to do so. And several years back at uh, one of the due diligence meetings, I just struck up a conversation with our guest today, Julian Albertini. And he and I hit off right, right away, and we have been friends uh, since that time. Uh, Julian is a portfolio manager of the Global Value Fund, Global Equity, Global Income Builder, and also U.S. Dividend Equities. He also is a senior research analyst uh, for the Global Value team. Uh, he was uh, a, a, an analyst, I'm sorry, for a hedge fund in New York, but he actually began his career um, in France, in Paris, uh, where he worked at the Bank of Rothschilds, and then he also worked for Morgan Stanley for four years in London. So his career has been Paris, London, New York, and you know what? He actually came to Bloomington, Indiana in 2023 to meet with our, uh, our clients that are invested with him and was just a smashing hit. And so as he and I have been talking throughout the year, we thought we'd love to get him uh, on the radio show. He went to the Columbia School, uh, which is interesting. That's the Warren Buffett School of, of Value Investing. He went there and actually has an interesting story about that as well. But a wonderful resource, a fantastic person, and uh, I have had a chance to meet him and his wife when I was in New York not long ago. Just wonderful people and a, a good friend of ours. And it, again, we go back to understand who you're invested with. And Julian is someone, David, that, that you and I could pick up the phone and get in touch with at any time. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Julian Albertini will be with us live. This is Your Money with David Hayes. Maybe 
Thank you so much for having me on the show. And, um, you know, very excited to be here. And happy birthday to you, David. <laughs> Thank you very much. I hate that I'm older than you, Julian, but I am. And uh, when we talked last week, we were on the, Doug and I were out of town, and you had just come out back from, I think, San Francisco. You were in New York. You're getting ready to head to, uh, to Europe. So, no, we appreciate you taking the time. I know, Doug, uh, you could talk, Julian, about all kinds of things. But in a recent interview, you were discussing who would likely feel the largest pinch from higher interest rates around the globe. And I have been on this soapbox about obviously the U.S. debt and personal debt, bank debt, uh, student loan debt, and then obviously debt around the world as well. But you said in this interview, and it was a short interview, you said that you thought that the pinch would be felt by sovereigns itself. Can you comment on that just a little bit? Sure. Um, you know, the way, the way we, we manage money, we long-term, and our objective is obviously to deliver attractive returns over time, but we also try to protect and preserve our investors' capital. And so with that objective in mind, we tend to, to worry a lot, a lot and, and look at around us what are the risks that could um, negatively impact our fund and, and our investors' capital. And, and clearly one of the risks we see today is, as you mentioned, the debt on the U.S. balance sheet. Because if you look at uh, the, the U.S. federal government, uh, since the end of the great financial crisis 15 years ago, the debt on the, on the federal balance sheet has, has you know, kept grinding higher and higher and higher. Today, it's north of you know, $34 trillion, up from $10 trillion in, in 2008. It went from 60% of GDP to 120% of GDP today. And we know from experience, we know from other countries that when you go beyond that 100% um, to GDP ratio, you enter the twilight zone. It structurally becomes hard to like repay that, 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 that huge part of debt. And so it's definitely something that worries us. Um, if you look at like the long-term budget outlook by the, the CBOE, uh, obviously it seems like that, 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 pile of debt will keep increasing over time. When we look at the massive unfunded liabilities, whether it's Medicare or Social Security, those are also um, concerning items on, on the balance sheet of the U.S. government. And so we see that uh, large fiscal deficit the government is running at a time of full unemployment um, as very concerning to us. You know, it makes the, the U.S. ultimately a bit weaker. Um, it, you know, it, make, it means that the government will have you know, less flexibility if we go through a recession. And so those are things we, we monitor very closely, and that definitely worries us. Uh, it also raised question around what's the outlook for the U.S. dollar going forward, which is why when we invest, you know, we try to diversify. We obviously invest in the U.S., but also overseas. And we want to make sure we own businesses which are very steady, very predictable, which have strong balance sheet and don't use much debt. Uh, but yeah, definitely the, the state of the, the federal government balance sheet and the amount of debt on that balance sheet definitely worries us. When I've been on a mission, uh, I've joined a, an army of people actually around the country sounding the alarm uh, that, hey, listen, folks, the only way I think we're going to have any chance at tackling some of the debt, at least the growing balance sheet, is to raise revenue and that's to raise taxes and i can't control taxes on anything else except on my one and only retirement account i want to move that money today pay tax at a low rate and then enjoy it tax-free while 
everyone else is paying the the bar tab. I, I that's the only thing I talk about. So people were always saying to me like, "How is this going to end?" And Julian, historically, it doesn't end well, does it? No, I mean it doesn't end well at all. Um, historically, you know, like it means the the currency debase and and the the trust the 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 credibility of of a sovereign um at a certain point just like start deteriorate and people don't want to stop lending to them the the currency goes down and that's definitely uh doesn't doesn't end well in most cases obviously we have instances and i think the u.s has been there before uh where you're able to to change course i think the u.s have done it in the 1990s you probably remember um, in the early 1990s, the U- U.S. government debt at the time was only like $4 trillion. Mm-hmm. And the bond market started to to rebel, what they call the bond vigilant yep. uh, woke up. And it forced the government at the time to lower federal government spending to increase taxes. And, and by the end of the 1990s, in 2000, the budget deficit had become a surplus. Um, which is why, you know, there's hope. To your point, it's not necessarily easy to get elected by saying I'm going to increase taxes and and lower spending, Uh, but that's probably what what is needed. Um, And ultimately, what will will dictate it is is the bond market. One of Clinton's advisors during that time said, you know, in my next life, I want to come back as the bond market because the bond market always gets its way. You know, it can intimidate everybody. And so... Um, so far, we're very lucky to have people willing to, to land to the U.S. government at very attractive rates. But that, that may change at some point. And so, yes, I think uh, fiscal discipline is, is likely needed. Real quick, before I know Doug wants to jump in, obviously, interest rates are talked about all the time. Inflation, and you were talking on our call prior to doing the show, and, and I was saying this during the worry of inflation, I was commenting that we need to own things that benefit from inflation. And what is that? Things like, you know, real estate, you know, companies, stuff that is, you know, if you're owning debt, it's not going to grow with inflation. Um, you guys have been probably the largest holder of gold of any fund that I'm aware of. And you already mentioned owning great companies. Give us your opinion on on that as far as inflation and the position of dollars, especially from First Eagle, and how, like you said in our call, preserving and protecting your wealth. And you said it earlier as well. Sure. It's a great question because if you take a step back and you ask yourself, how do we get out of that uh, position in, in the U.S., obviously, uh, one way is, is fiscal discipline, as I, as I described. Another way is what's called financial repression, which is what the U.S. did at the end of uh, World War II. At the end of World War II, obviously, uh, debt to GDP in the U.S. was close to what it is today, 120, 130 percent. And the way the U.S. got out of that situation was with financial repression, which means you let inflation runs at four, five, six percent, which inflates the economy. At the same time, you maintain interest rates very low, so you can refinance your debt at negative real rates. You know the rate you pay is, is below the rate of inflation, and so the economy inflates, yet your debt your debt doesn't doesn't move very much. And so that type of environment is obviously very difficult for you clients, which are retirees um, get a fixed income, but that income usually doesn't keep up with, with inflation, so they, they get poorer. Yeah. 
And so in that, in that scenario, what you need, to your point, is you need to own an asset that can keep up with inflation. And they come often in, in several forms. They can be, you know, like good quality businesses um, which have pricing power, which can keep, um, keep up with, with inflation over time. And those are, it can be everyday product. It can be beer or spirits. You know, you've got great companies in, in those sectors. It can be real asset to your point. It can be commodities or it can be gold. Gold's been around um, for a long, long time. You know, we've been using gold for close to like four millenniums uh, as, as, as human being, as a, as a form of, of, of currency. And, and gold is one of the, um, very few assets that have been able to like keep its purchasing power over time because the amount of gold doesn't grow very much. Um, there's only so much gold on this planet. There's only so much gold that gets mined. And gold has, has very unique uh, characteristics. You know, it's inert. It's resistant to corrosion and oxidation. just doesn't go away. And so the stock of gold is very stable, which makes it... Um, naturally a great a great currency and so that's why you know fund beyond a masterful portfolio which is in those good quality businesses run by good quality people at attractive valuation we also keep um a little bit of gold between 10 and 15 percent of the fund because we feel gold's a great ballast uh in times of of market stress in terms of crisis it's also uh, an asset that maintains its value over time in real terms and so Again, to, to pursue the objective of, of strong uh, and attractive returns over time, yet being resilient in, in down market, I think having, having gold in addition to, to owning great businesses uh, is, is, is the right formula. Julian Albertini is our guest, portfolio manager at First Eagle Global. The only difference you know, between the World War II era in inflating and keeping rates low is we have two monster entitlement programs that are tied to inflation, Medicare and Social Security here in the U.S., and that is its problem. So if you start inflating, then that's an additional cost that even if you keep the debt low. So we'll see how it all comes together. Julian's our guest. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to get his opinion on the reserve currency. Of course, everyone talks about, is the U.S. going to maintain the reserve currency status? What about crypto? All the different things that are out there floating around that he certainly and his uh, colleagues have to keep their eye on. And that's why Doug has trusted so many people with uh, First Eagle for so long. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. It's Your Money with David Hayes. Boy, Julian, he really called me out being old by saying, David, you probably remember this in the early 90s. So <laughs> thank you very much for that on my birthday week. 54 years young and still still making it happen. So, Doug, of course, I knew that you've been fired up about having Julian on, and, and, you, and he's graciously taken the time to be on the show today. And I know you had a couple things you wanted to say and ask. Sure. I think it was actually an attribution to your wisdom and knowledge about studying economics and, and investments <laughs> to know that we remember what happened in the 1990s. Uh, I'm younger than you, and I still remember that. Um, no, Julian, we uh, one of the things that is so uh, unique about the strategy and the fund that you are a, a man manager and an analyst, uh, is the value that you own companies from around the world. And, and sometimes people tend to forget that some of the companies that are around the world, if they were in the U.S., would be in the S&P 500, uh, but because they're just domiciled elsewhere, that they are uniquely positioned in other parts of the world. 
Um, but but because of that, you you travel, you research, you study, you talk to these different uh, companies and different owners around the world. Um, what about the reserve currency, the dollar being the reserve currency, and what, what does the rest of the world or different parts of the world, do you have any commentary on how they view the U.S. dollar and, and our positioning right now? Sure. I think uh, it's a great privilege, obviously, for, for the U.S. to be to be the reserve currency of the world. And there are some structural reasons why it is the reserve currency of the world. I don't necessarily think it's going to change significantly over the, over the next decade. I think the U.S. benefit from um, very stable, consistent uh, rule of law. You know, the the consistency, the reliability of the legal system in the U.S. is not necessarily something you find in China or in, in, in other countries. It's also um, a very large market. It has, a, it has a very deep capital market, which you don't necessarily find in, in other, other, other countries. Um, the U.S. also treats, interestingly, uh, foreigners and, and residents the, the same way. You know, you can invest uh, in the U.S. if you... Uh, if you're foreigners and, and, and benefit from, uh, from the same rule of law. There's also a network effect that explains why the U.S. is a, is a reserve currency. You know, if 20 people trade in dollar, um, if one leaves and want to trade another currency, you know, you won't benefit from that, from that network effect. And so I think as a result, the, the U.S. is likely to remain for, for quite a while the, the reserve currency of the world. But at the same time, you've got to your point, Doug, a number of countries which are not necessarily aligned in the U.S. or, or, or less aligned than they were, whether it's China, whether it's India, whether it's all the, the BRICS, and they're looking for substitute. There are not necessarily that many uh, obvious substitute. You know, I mentioned you can think of like the, the, the Swiss francs, but it's a very small capital market, or the Singapore dollar very small market too. There's obviously the the Chinese uh, yuan, but again, the, the rule of law is a question mark. You can invest in China. You cannot necessarily get your, your capital out. And so, I think there's no uh, obvious substitute to the to the U.S. dollar in the in the medium term. One of them is is obviously gold, and you start to see um, some countries invest more and more in gold and start selling dollars. That's definitely the case of the central bank of China. And so those are definitely uh, things that might impact the, the U.S. dollar going forward. And, and why, I think, as a, as a long-term investor, if your goal is to, to preserve wealth and, and make sure you build your wealth in a, in a resilient fashion over time, you want to have, obviously, um, some assets in the U.S., but you also want to diversify. And that's what we're trying to do. You know, we're trying to find the right balance between, uh, between opportunities in the U.S., but, but also overseas. Jillian, are, are there any uh, global companies, uh, companies domiciled outside the U.S. that you've recently visited there or had discussions with that you have found interesting and relevant in today's world? Yeah, and I think that's the beauty of, of, the, of the job I do and why I'm really excited to, to come to work every day. What we're trying to do at the end of the day is relatively simple. You know, we're trying to like really like bottom up one company at a time find those like really high quality business run by people we, we trust and we respect and hopefully can invest um, in them at attractive valuation and, and let those people like work for us. And, and the beauty of what I do is the, the U.S. obviously 
um, you know, home of many amazing businesses and a lot of innovation, but it doesn't have the monopoly of, of those great businesses. And so uh, recently we went to, to Switzerland. Um, we met with a company called Schindler that makes elevators. You know, there's four companies in the world that makes elevators. It's Otis, obviously, in the U.S. It's Kone. Uh, it's Schindler in, in, in Switzerland, and it's Thyssen Group from, from Germany. And those are century-old uh, companies. Elevator is a great business because you make money, obviously, when you install the elevator, but you also make uh, profit for many years when you service elevators. And so all those companies are sitting on very large portfolio of elevators that need to be serviced every year, which are basically annuity stream of, of cash flows. And those services... Um, are part of the regulation in every country. You know, it's part of the building code in every country that elevators have to be serviced every 12, 18, 24 months. And so you have no choice but to pay the service engineer, which, you know, give them pricing power. They can increase the price of services in line with, with inflation. So that's a great company listed in Switzerland. Um, I was in, in London recently. We met with another company called Diageo, which some of you may be familiar with. Um, it's a spirit company. They own great brands like Johnny Walker, like Captain Morgan, Casamigo Tequila, Bellies, Guinness, etc., etc. And they happen to be listed uh, in London. They obviously sell spirits all over the world and, and quite a lot in, in, in the U.S. So I think, um, you know, we, we travel the world trying to find these really good quality businesses, run by management team we, we trust and uh, and we just, you know, hopefully they trade at attractive valuation when we when we buy into them. We're going to take another quick break uh, with Julian. He is gracious enough to hang out with us. I've been interested in what Julian has to say about demographics around the world with more than 70% of the GDP, at least here in America, coming from consumer spending. How many people at different ages and stages of life matter? What they're buying? Why are they buying? How much are they buying? And that's true in most industrialized countries. So he mentioned uh, the spirit industry. That is a demographic thing. I spent a little time out of the country recently and noticed what people were doing at certain ages as far as their consumption of alcohol goes. We'll be right back. And sugary drinks as well. We'll be back at Your Money with David Hayes. You know, the elevator story is a great story. I mean, in fact, I was here at the radio station and we had service people here for like a week. And I thought to myself, yeah, I have friends that own, you know, a mechanical contracting firm who then services restaurants and they or airplanes that have to be served. I mean, that's a, that's a great model. And, and with only four elevator companies in the world, kind of narrows your search down a little bit. A lot of, a lot of retirees from Otis Elevator around Bloomington, Indiana, because Otis had a place here for a really, really long time. Julian, he is our guest, Albertini. And uh, Julian, I'm curious because I've been following demographics, predictable spending patterns, how many people in the U.S. we have at different ages and stages of life, kind of what's next. And it seems to be a pretty good predictor of real estate trends or uh, you know, what people are buying and why they're buying things. Is that something that you at First Eagle pay attention to here in the U.S. and around the globe? Yeah, no, it's definitely something we, we think about. Uh, as I said, you know, we invest globally. And if you look at the demographics outlook, um, it varies significantly by country. If you look at Japan, Japan has a very old population. The population is actually shrinking. 
if you look at Japan, they're selling more diapers for old people than they sell diapers for newborn. It's obviously a very sad uh, statistics, but it also means the domestic economy, as your population age, as your population shrinks, has a hard time growing because, as you know, when you get older, you don't necessarily consume as much. You right. don't necessarily buy a new house. You don't necessarily furnish it. And so it means that the domestic Japan economy um, you know, will be impacted by, by that negative uh, demographic outlook. So it's definitely something we, we think about as long-term investors. The U.S., on the, on the other hand, um, benefits from reasonably solid demographics and from, from immigration as well. You know, one of the competitive advantages of the U.S. is it's a magnet for, for talent globally. And, and I was, you know, one of them. When I was a, a young man in, in France, my dream was to go study in the U.S. And, 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 and be in the U.S. And I think the U.S. attracts lots of talent uh, from all over the world. And that's been a great competitive advantage for for this country over time. And so, yes, demographics and you your ability to attract talent um, and be a magnet for talent has, has been a, a very important characteristic of successful countries, but also like any successful organization. If you look at you know, the basketball program at University of Indiana or, or Duke, you know, they've been so successful because they've been like magnet for talent. And I think it's important for businesses, for any organization and for for nations in order to be successful over time, to, to, to attract uh, attract talent, attract capital. And so, yes, demographic plays an plays a important role in the long-term outlook when we, when we look at some countries. Well, I'm old enough to remember the last Indiana National Championship game in 1987 as well, or last time we won the championship. It's been a while. Uh, you know, you talk about Japan, uh, not a lot of immigration there. China, they're now practically begging their young women to have babies again after having no baby policy for so long. Uh, Europe's aging as well. What about some of these other countries like India or, you know, just the countries that you see with a lot of young people, Mexico? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, if you look at emerging markets in, in, in general, uh, those are countries with like younger population, faster growing population, uh, consumers which don't necessarily have everything we, we have today. And, and so you want to you wanna benefit um, from the growth of that of that consumer, and so we do own businesses, whether it's in Mexico, whether it's in uh, it's in, in in India, which have which have exposure to those markets. I mentioned Diageo, the spirit company based in based in, in the UK. Diageo is the largest spirit company in India, hmm. uh, and India is potentially a huge market for Diageo because you've got 1.4 billion people. Uh, I think half of the population is under the age of 35, and they've got a strong taste for brown spirits. Uh, Indians, interestingly, like to drink um, like a, a local scotch, you know, like uh, which costs less than a dollar a bottle, but they've got a strong taste for, for brown spirits. And so a company like Diageo, as the Indian consumer gets wealthier, consume more, uh, go out and, and, you know, as its lifestyle um, maybe become closer to ours, will we'll, we'll benefit. And so we do own businesses which have exposure to those, to those markets. Either they tend to be companies which are listed in the U.S. or listed in Europe, which have been doing business in, in, in those countries for a long time, or they, they, they're local companies. And so I can give you more example. We own a company called Richemont listed in, in, in Switzerland, they own the Cartier brand. And so 
there's lots of demand for luxury product coming from those countries as the consumer gets wealthier. And a company like Richemont and, and Cartier, half of the revenues are coming from, from Asia. Uh, there's a big boom for um, for engagement rate. You know, in Asia, it was not part of the, the tradition historically, but now they're starting to buy more and more uh, engagement ring and, and, and jewelry and that company benefit. We are, we are a large child of a company called FEMSA in Mexico, which is a family-owned uh, company. They've been around for 120 years, um, and the family runs several businesses. One of them is OXO, which is the largest chain of convenience stores in, in Mexico. And, uh, you know, the family has been great steward of capital, and we're happy to, to partner with them as the, the business keeps growing as the Mexican economy uh, grows over time. So there's lots of opportunities to invest and, and benefit from the growth coming from, from those countries. Obviously, I think you have to be very disciplined in the price you pay to buy into those companies and, and very disciplined in the people you want to align yourself with. And so a lot of the work we do every day is to spend time visiting uh, those companies, getting to know the people and finding the right partners uh, we can trust to, to, to benefit from that from that growth going forward. Yeah, and interesting watching the habits of people, how they change. You know, it used to be that beer was a big thing, and, and now a lot of people are moving into spirits. Uh, champagne, I noticed a lot of champagne being consumed when we were on, uh, out of the country. Uh, I never drank champagne unless it was New Year's Eve, right? Though, and, and the fact that my son drinks a lot of energy drinks, like monster drinks and things like that. So it's an interesting dynamic because you can see how many people, what ages they are, what they're spending their money on, and invest your money wisely accordingly. Julian, we're going to take one more break and keep you for one more segment. I hope you're okay with that. And we're going to dig into gold a little bit deeper. And we already hit on the value that has bring has sprung historically. But I want to hear a little more about the history of gold and how it has related to our currency over time. Here in the U.S., we know, you know we've been on and off the gold standard uh, and been off of it since the, the Nixon era, I believe, was when the last time we had any connection to gold with our currency. And then also just about some of the global risks that are out there. Obviously, Israel, the Gaza Strip, they're out. You know, they, we've, that's in the news every day. We had Ukraine and, and uh, Russia fighting for quite some time. We have the concern of China, who says, Taiwan is theirs, and Taiwan says, nope, we're independent. So I'm interested, because you're so globally connected, what your feelings are as far as risk goes from an investment standpoint. Because people worry about a lot of things that maybe they shouldn't worry about, and maybe they should be worrying about things that they don't worry about. We'll take a quick break. Come back. More with Julian. This is Your Money with David Hayes. Welcome back. This is Your Money with David Hayes. Doug Hughes live in studio with David Hayes, of course, and our guest, a friend of ours that we have been connected to for a long time, both the Fun family, but more importantly, the person, Mr. Julian Albertini. Uh, Julian, uh, David mentioned a couple of items he wanted to cover, but real quick, real quick, I want to ask you about cash. Uh, Warren Buffett is holding a lot of cash. You guys hold cash. Um we get this question actually quite a bit from our clients as we're thinking about them. You know, how much cash should we have? How much cash should we have? Do you have just a real brief moment to touch on cash before we get to the other day? Also, I think you met Warren Buffett one time. Could you tell us that story real quick? Yeah, so uh, Doug, you're right. You know, we, as, as I mentioned earlier, our goal is obviously to um, deliver, you know, strong returns over time, but also to protect and preserve our investors' capital. And so we, we think capital is very precious 
we don't want to force it to work. And so when we don't find anything intelligent to do with our, our, our precious investors' capital, sometimes we have cash. And so you see sometimes um, cash ebbs and flow in the fund, which is very much a residual of the, the bottom-up stock picking. You know, when there are plenty of opportunities, when we can buy into good quality businesses at very attractive valuation, will be fully invested. When, when things are expensive and we don't find anything intelligent to do, we, we'll have some, some cash in our funds. You know, very much the way um, the way Ryan Buffett uh, runs Berkshire Hathaway. You know, he's, he's obviously uh, a great example for, for us. And, uh, you know, I had the chance, as you said, Doug, to, to meet with him once. He's a, he's a great source of inspiration. I came to, to the U.S. because I wanted to study at Columbia University where Buffett, um, studied and so I had the chance to uh, with Columbia to fly to Omaha once and, and spend a morning with him asking him questions and he's a he's an incredibly kind smart individual and, um, and I remember at the time I just like started my, my investment career and uh, uh, Buffett always talks about owning businesses uh, protected by like wide modes and uh, I come from France, so we have moats in France, but they tend to be around old castles. So he just didn't, didn't, um, you know, mean mean much to me. And so I just raised my hand and and I said, Mr. Buffett, what what is the moat? Can you explain us? And and he said, every time he looks at an investment, every time he considers uh, a business to to invest in, he, he asks himself one simple question. You know, he looks at the smallest man he knows and. He mentioned the two smart, smartest man he knows were his partner, Charlie Munger, who unfortunately passed away a few weeks ago, or Bill Gates. Uh, Buffett's a very good friend of Bill Gates. And so when he, when he wants to make an investment, he asks himself a simple question. If I give Charlie or if I give Bill Gates, you know, 10, 15, 20 billion dollars, can they actually compete with that business? Can they actually replicate it? And I think that's a great question to, to ask yourself when you, when, you, when, when you invest. And I mentioned, for example, um, some spirit companies or, or elevators. You know, think about Bill Gates tomorrow could start uh, a Scotch brand. But, you know, first of all, it's pretty hard to, to find, um, you know, you need to be in Scotland to, to, find, to find Scotch. And, and before you launch it, it needs to be aged. 10 or, or 15 years and you know if you go to um to the liquor store if you go to a bar if you have a choice between a johnny walker blue or, or bill gates blue you know most likely you'll go for, for for johnny walker you know those brands are like very hard to to to, to replicate the heritage is is hard to, to replicate the same thing for elevators you know if you if you build a, a new um office tower building tomorrow and you're going to have to build an elevator. You want someone who's been time-tested. You want to be sure that um, the person you, you bring the elevator from will be able to like service it and maintain it for decades to come. And so most likely you'll go for an existing brand. You most likely will go for Otis rather than, than Bill Gates elevators. And so I think that's a very interesting way to look at um, to look at businesses, and that's the way we we, we, we think about businesses at first year. We want to own assets which are very hard to duplicate, and as a result, a great store value. And so, uh, Warren Buffett has been a has been an incredible guide and, and source of inspiration for for firm, obviously. And we uh, we proud shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway, and we've been for a long time. Julian, what about the geopolitical risks out there? We have the Ukrainian situation that's been going on for quite some time, Israel, Gaza, uh, all kinds of stuff happening around the world. 
Um, are, are these things from an investment standpoint that people should be concerned about, or is it simply the geopolitical tragedy of, of, of human life uh, side, of the, side of the journal? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, a difficult one to, to answer. I think they, when we think about like risk, what worries us the most, um, you know, we're not necessarily concerned by a potential, you know, recession in the U.S. We've had over the past 70 years, you know, like 11 or 12 recession. We own businesses which have resisted the test of time. We own businesses with like strong balance sheet with like little or no debt. And we own companies that attractive valuation. So they should be able to like navigate an economic recession. I think the geopolitical risk tend to be the, the one we cannot necessarily forecast or foresee. And so, yes, we worry about them. But the way we, quote unquote, hedge that risk is by having gold in our fund. And we have a, a ballast in gold, as I mentioned, which is today 15% of, of a fund. And I think that that ballast, that potential hedge is probably higher than it's been historically. Historically, it was around 10%. Today, it's closer to 15 And the reason behind it, David, is because, as you said, I think the, the risk and the clouds we see on the horizon tend to be a bit darker today than they've been in the past. And so I think having, that, having a bit more gold, which we know will tend to do well if we go uh, through a crisis, makes, makes sense to us today. Perfect. Doug, you have one more thing. Yeah. So, Julian, just wanted to, to uh, touch base on this real quick. Um, you know, we are involved with helping people through retirement, and we are involved with helping people plan for income. And one of the things that, that sometimes tends to get lost in all the noise of recessions and this, this, that, and the other is this idea that you always have to outperform an index. And one of the things that, that I have always been able to, to, to talk to people about with this particular strategy is this should not be considered something that's competing with an all-U.S. index or something like that. This strategy, this gold plus cash plus these quality companies from around the world, is a, a sliver of a portfolio that does what? Now, you describe it. I describe it as something that just kind of works out of sync, widen with, with just the regular markets. It's out of performance chasing. It's just a good, solid, steady fund that we can count on. Give us another idea for those people who are out there who are accumulated some money. They're middle class Americans who just want to make sure that retirement just doesn't go off the rails. Yeah, as I said, I think the goal what we're trying to achieve is what we call like resilient wealth creation. We understand people have worked very hard to accumulate savings, and I think the one thing that can happen to point Doug is trying to like chase the market. And, and the markets are very volatile. They'll be, uh, you might be down 20, 25, 30, 40%. And, and at that point, what do you do? You might decide to like sell and go to cash at exactly the wrong moment. And so what we're trying to do at First Eagle is avoid the big like, ups and downs. We're trying to compound capital in a very resilient fashion. And we strongly believe that by, we will achieve that by like losing less. And so we want to be very resilient in down market. Our fund will tend to outperform when, when the price of asset go down substantially, and, and we'll be able to like bounce back. We don't necessarily be able to like keep up when the market goes up 20, 25, 30 percent. But I think over time, by like losing less, uh, you end up winning, and and you 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 know you build wealth in a resilient fashion. That's what we're trying to achieve. Wonderful. So any parting thoughts, Julian, before we go? David and I are going to come see you this year sometime. I've already pinned him down on that. But any parting thoughts? 
No, thank you so much for having me. Uh, you know, incredibly proud to have you as as partners um, and, and investors in our, in our fund, and we are. Uh, you know, we very value the partnership and, and looking forward to seeing you guys in, in New York very soon. Julian Albertini, Portfolio Manager, Global Value, Global Equity, Global Income Builder at First Eagle. Julian, thank you so much. Enjoy Europe, and we will hopefully see you very soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. We're going to take a break, guys. When we come back, we're going to wrap up the show. It's Your Money with David Hayes. You know, there's a lot of gems there. I, I was thinking as he was talking, <laughs> yeah. when I get questions about a particular topic, whether it's the currency reserve, uh, geopolitical issues, we may just clip out a segment and send it to people and say, l- listen to yeah. this. He was in Bloomington uh, last, last year. Last April. Last April, he yeah. He had a nice turnout for a, a yeah. shareholder meeting, hopefully get him back. You and I will head to New York to visit with him. And yeah. off air, he said, let's come up, spend an afternoon together, and then we'll go to dinner with our Absolutely. wives that evening. Absolutely. So yeah. it's great. Honestly, folks, to be connected with people like Julian, uh, to be connected with people like Ed Slott, to be connected with people like Mary Beth Franklin, to be connected with congressmen and senators and people that are on different committees in Washington, uh, being connected with certain lobbyists in in our industry that we know what's going on and how to best protect uh, the interest of the consumer. Um, It's a a good thing. I mean, we've been at this. This is my 30th year in business this year. I'm starting my 30th year. Someone asked me if comprehensive financial has been around 30 years. Technically, no, no. I think we domiciled that name or corked that name, I think, sometime in the first couple of years. But but I've been around for 30 years, and I have seen a lot of the downturns. You know, I've seen I – mean, we've seen a lot, and we've seen a lot of the good times as well. But I think the thing you mentioned, you know, the steadiness into uh, yes. – people don't even know how much risk they're taking most of the time. Right. And what they're doing there is just saying, okay, we're going to have cash. We're, going to, we're not going to force anything. We're going to have gold. Mm-hmm. We're going to own great companies around the world. And don't compare us to anybody except for the people that preserve and protect wealth. Exactly right. And Julian would tell you that, that this is no more than 10% of a portfolio. It is not going to compete with the S&P when it's running high or a growth fund or anything like that. But if you want something that just steadily moves along and checks a couple boxes, low risk, a debt-free comes around the world, answers the gold question, answers the cash question, it's a simple hold. I'll never forget seeing you and Julian at the U.S. Open. In, yeah. In, uh, was, that was in New York, right? In New York, yeah. 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 A picture of you guys. You were out visiting for due diligence meeting, yeah. I think, and mm-hmm. you ended up at the U.S. Open. Yeah. You're a big tennis guy. So I am. Yeah. I know. That's that's outstanding. Well, Doug, thanks for hooking us up with Julian. That Absolutely. was a big, big deal. And we have a lot of great guests coming up. I'm actually going to be talking with Ed and company here in just about 15 minutes because I have... A breakout session I'm doing for the Ed Slot Elite Advisor Group that's meeting in Indianapolis this spring. Go. So yeah. they want to make sure they put the reins on me and say, Don't, <laughs> we're not letting him just go wild. We're going to make sure that we have a program that uh, everyone will enjoy listening to. So I hope everyone has a great week. Stay warm and, uh, you know, keep going, Hoosiers, hopefully. See you later, guys. Bye-bye. The preceding program was brought to you by Comprehensive Financial Consultants and CFCI, which is solely responsible for its content. Securities are offered through J.W. Cole Financial, member FINRA and SIPC. Investment advice offered through CFCI and J.W. Cole Advisors. J.W. Cole Financial, J.W. Cole Advisors, and CFCI are unaffiliated entities.